So the first question is going to be directed at um, Ayodeji. Um, Ayodeji, just to confirm, can you hear me clearly? Yes, I can hear you clearly, Jibala. Uh, great, great, thanks. So this question goes thus. Um, Africa's textile ecosystem is heavily dominated by fintech platforms. Um, to what extent has the underlying mission, which a lot of these fintechs allude to, i.e. financial inclusion, driven this growth? Um, can, you, can you please um, speak to this um, against, against the backdrop of the fact that approximately 31% of the total adult population in sub-Saharan Africa today lacks access to um, any banking services? Thanks. Yeah, thanks, uh, Jibala. I think um, what we're experiencing is just really a reflection of uh, the, I'll say it's really a reflection of the bank in terms of, uh, in terms of capital and also in terms of talent. I guess capital will go to where, uh, and also talent will go to where opportunity uh, is greatest. Uh, so I guess uh, some of the funding going in. Uh, can we all go on mute? There's a lot of background noise. So if you're not speaking, can you please mute yourself? As the host, are you able to mute people from your side? Fortunately, I'm not. I think uh, the host right now is NKK. So NKK, if you can help mute to everyone. I think okay. it's better now. I, yeah. okay. no, I was just saying that uh, I think what we're experiencing today, just in terms of where capital is going, is a, is a reflection of uh, where we're seeing most of the innovation. And money and talent will always go to where uh, the biggest opportunity uh, sits. But having said that, I think the point you were making just in terms of financial inclusion are some of those innovations really addressing uh, that. I, I think uh, there's still much to be done. And I, I guess that's where the opportunity is. Um, but also, I guess one of the things that which presents an incredible opportunity on the continent is the fact that uh, Africa is, and maybe Sub-Saharan Africa is still one of the most difficult places to do business in the world. Uh, but more importantly, uh, when we are talking about digital as well, uh, Africa is still a little bit behind. So just to put uh, things in context, Nigeria, for example, when you think about Nigeria and when you remove some of the big cities in Nigeria, most of what you have in Nigeria, most smaller cities, maybe what you, uh, what you can categorize as uh, tier two, tier three uh, towns and cities, and even for telecom infrastructure, very quickly you realize that as you move away from the city center and you move into those uh, smaller cities, towns, and sometimes villages, uh, getting access to 3G, 4G uh, is almost impossible. Uh, and when you get into that kind of situation, we're talking of infrastructure, telecom infrastructural gaps. And as a result of those telecom infrastructural gaps, I, I think it's almost impossible to uh, to innovate, uh, to to innovate to solve some of those infrastructural gaps. Until, just to give you a very good example, until you have fiber across Nigeria, you would not necessarily going to have uh, ubiquitous access to um, to data or very cheap data in, in Nigeria. Look at India, for example. What has happened with the geo the geo moment? Uh, we, I think in Nigeria is going to take another five to six years, which is uh, what NTN, which is by far the largest uh, telecom operator is saying. Um, so I do think that there's an opportunity for some of those uh, new banks like ourselves to, to, to say, okay, in the meantime, maybe it's going to take us another five to, to 10 years. What, what can we do to definitely uh, leverage that structural migration of people uh, that are offline today. And as they are moving on online, how can we then take full advantage of that? I think for us, that's, that's the real problem we're trying to solve. 
And we're also saying that if we are available across all channels, then we potentially might have a good chance of taking full advantage of that structural migration. When, uh, whenever it happens, it's not a question of if, it's definitely just a, a question of, uh, of when. Um, so let me, let, let me stop let me stop there, but I do think that some of uh, some of uh, what we're seeing today is a reflection of some of the structural infrastructural gaps that uh, are currently in the market. Will that go away? We do think at some point it will get solved. Uh, but the bigger question is, will we be uh, well positioned and well primed to then take advantage of, uh, of, of that structural migration? Because it will definitely happen. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, David, for that for that insightful response. I think one of the key things I heard was that um, you know, whilst financial inclusion is a, is a is an overriding underpinning imperative, it's still difficult, practically impossible to innovate, um, to innovate away from um, or to out-innovate really um, the um, infrastructure gaps that, that we have on, on the continent and and this can I, that being said, can I invite Chad to, to kind of ch chime in at this point and and um, t tell us what what has driven um, what has driven the promotion of, of your company and and how you guys see things at Coco Coco? Thanks. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you know, I think the broader story with the fintechs, particularly, I guess, what we call the neo banks, which I think Coco Coco would probably be considered one of those. You know, where we're we're doing the business that traditional traditionally banks did but everything recording in can, can be um anything that can be done digitally anything that doesn't uh involve shuffling paperwork stamping stamping title deeds moving cash things like that you know taking the parts of banking that are just information which is you know a good part of the transactions and then some of the some of the lending particularly the unsecured lending so to me that's sort of the broader trend is that sort of the information technology revolution means that companies like Copo Copo can come in and with a real lean team and some good technology and an agile set of developers provide something that basically solves a lot of businesses banking needs. And you know they, they don't necessarily need a traditional bank account with the exception of some of those legacy items like clearing paper checks or, or dep depositing cash or things like that. But most of the, most of the money movement can be handled by a non-bank player uh, like Copo Copo and, and many others on the continent. Thanks, Chad. That is useful. Um, um, just getting an insight into some of the functions that you discharge as, as a neo bank. Um, uh, Kiru, can I ask you? Um, you know, Fingo is particularly targeted. You know, it's a youth-focused neo bank, right? Um, so clearly, um, can you speak to some of the underpinning imperatives for yourselves in addition to this concept of financial inclusion? Uh, I, I think the concept of youth-focused neo bank is interesting. So can you speak to us a bit about about what one, one of these um, imperatives? Thank you. Thank you, Ajibola. Um, so I'm, I'm going to take this from the point of um, an entrepreneur and the point of, uh, you know, most entrepreneurs start because they identify a problem. Oftentimes they experience that problem uh, and then they look to solve that problem and they find that actually a lot of people experience that problem. And this can then become a startup uh, and the startup can, you know, in, provide value and, uh, you know, not just for themselves, but also for other people experiencing that problem. So here at Fingo, we're, we're building a digital bank for young Africans. Um, Africa is the youngest continent in history. Um, there's a lot of young people who struggle to access financial services. There's a lot of them who don't have enough uh, products and services, especially in finance, designed for them. But this isn't just about finance. It's about every other um, type of institution that serves uh, the continent. We Our philosophy is that everything should be kind of geared towards serving um, this next large um, uh, population that's going to account for so much of our economic uh, productivity. So in terms of inclusion, I think that the premise of a startup is where can you grow really quickly and where can you add a lot of value really quickly? Um, and if you're looking at it from an inclusion perspective, we actually 
you know, when we looked at the type of payment systems that developed um, almost 15 years ago um, that were really heralded as the champions of inclusion was USSD payments. So payments like mobile money where people would be able to access um, with using their uh, smartphone that is, you know, effectively a non-smartphone. Uh, today um, and in the next 10 years, you're going to have a lot of people with smartphones. The price of smartphones is going to be almost $10. Um, so does that is building a USD solution today inclusive? Uh, not so much. Inclusivity actually then means that you need to build something that's fit for the smartphone. You need to build something really advanced. You need to build something with a you know almost a swanky user interface. So if you look at the most popular apps in Africa today, it's actually the social media apps. So there's not a single person on this call that's you know not using WhatsApp probably right now, <laughs> um, using their Facebook, <laughs> using um, uh, Instagram, you know, the morning we woke up. Um, those, those apps are designed that none of them are USSD. All of them are completely, um, uh, you know, natured for your smartphone. And we think that that's where all the apps should go right now. Um, and so at Finger, we're not just aiming to build uh, kind of an inclusive app. We're actually aiming to build one of the best applications and one of the best user interfaces you can build. And it's a hard thing to say that in Africa because, you know, you can't really say we have the best roads. You can't really say we have the best hospitals. But as people in this room, as the technology companies in this room, we can actually build some of the best software in the world because the barriers to entry is just code. Um, you know, we don't have to build, um, you know, massive uh, infrastructure. We we kind of can layer on great code onto our products and be able to give users an experience that they will never, ever get. And that actually is comparable to some of the best um, services in the world. So I think for us, inclusion matters, but also, you know, the quality um, of it is, is, you know, imperative, especially for a smartphone-driven world. Um, and also we think that, you know, everything should be geared towards this youth population that's extremely, extremely vibrant. Thanks a lot for that, um, um, Kiru. Uh, I, think, I, think, I think it's clear that um, Fingo has kind of connected uh, its future to the teaming um, youth population in Africa. So we're taking a bet, a bet on the population that, that is clear um, in addition to the traditional concept of financial inclusion as, as insightful to hear. Um, very quickly before we kind of dive into other questions, I wanted to kind of pick chat up on the points um, you made just so you can develop it further. Um, you, know, you kind of alluded to this relationship or this dynamic between new banks now and traditional banks. You made allusions to some functions that traditional banks discharge um, and that new banks don't have to, particularly mention things like paper checks, ETC. Uh, and the question is, as traditional banks respond to, to competition from fintechs, um, these traditional banks have decided to embrace technology in their service offerings. Um, I think the, the question is, to start with, what synergies can be explored between new banks and traditional banks? And, and I, the second question at that point would be, do you see in the long term any sort of convergence um, down the line between these two types of entities, i.e. The, the new banks and traditional banks. It's uh, interesting to hear your views on this. Thanks. Right. Um, yeah, so for the first one, um, you know, for the neobanks or the fintechs that basically conduct uh, business that was traditionally done by the banks, you know, I, I think the advantage and the opportunity for people like Kobo Kobo is we can be kind of far more agile because we don't have sort of legacy systems and processes and, and things like that. Um, you know, um, and, and I hope I, I don't offend any bankers on the call, but you know, it just it's very difficult for kind of incumbent industries that have been for a long time to disrupt their own business model. You know, there's very few examples of that. Uh, I, I, the analogy I always hear is about basically the companies that now dominate mobile telephony versus the ones that dominated fixed line terrestrial lines. Very few made the switch even though the old fixed line telephone companies were very well placed, they had all the billing engines and they, you know, whatever it might be, they, you know, they basically had all the competencies to take on uh, mobile phones, but it was pretty much a new set of players in every country around the world uh, because of the difficulty and disruption. And, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I wish the traditional banks well, but it, it's, it's sort of hard for them to be as agile as a company like Copa Copo and other, other fintechs uh, on the line, um, whether there's synergies. I mean, I think, you know, I think the synergy might be, you know, that kind of the trend that, you know, a lot, a lot of these players 
including Copo Copo, are now pursuing you know banking licenses or deposit taking licenses to kind of disrupt from inside the club rather than from the periphery. So I'd say you know more and more. I expect more and more will be pulled kind of into the fold of li license entities, but um, but lead, that lead with uh, technology. And uh, I've already forgotten what your second question was. I think you might be muted. I can't hear you. Uh, you're, you're on mute. Uh, we, we see your lips moving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my apologies for that. So the, the second question was um, whether or not you think that's going forward, you know, sometime in the future, maybe in the medium to long term, do you see any sort of convergence between these two types of entities? I, I know you mentioned that some of these new banks are now beginning to kind of get licenses to, to disrupt from the club. Do you see any convergence in the long term? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think there's going to be a role for the legacy banks for a long, long time. Cash will be in the system. There will be things like checkbooks and, and things like that for quite a while. You know, for the, um, so I, I think there will be a role in those functions. But, you know, I think, you know, the, the, business, the parts of the business that are just moving data through, through the airwaves or however data moves, um, you know, more and more is that could be picked up by kind of leaner, more agile players, uh, that some of which will get banking licenses and be regulated that way. I, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm smart enough to predict uh, like how this is going to shake out in 10 or 20 years. I don't know. Yeah. Thanks a lot for that. Um, I guess I guess lots of open questions in that respect. Picking up on this theme of, of a possible convergence in the future, um, Fulu, can I, can I just kind of bring you in at this point, if you don't mind? Um, as fintech entities begin to emerge as a more established subset within the broader financial markets, um, and particularly against the backdrop of you know, the relatively recent deal acquisition that yourselves did um, as it pertains to Bionic, um, can you speak to us about some of the most notable observations you've seen thus far in the fintech MA space um, you know, in the last two, three years? Um, hi, um, thank you for that. Um, yes, so ever since really MFS Africa acquired Bionic, um, I think there's been an interesting shift in the fintech M&A space where we see a lot of equity raises, um, where a lot of fintech startups are actually embarking on the various rounds of, of equity um, raising, um, you know, whether or not it's depending on what size a startup has been at and how they're trying to grow. So I think it's also showing that, you know, investors are increasingly more interested in helping the startups grow instead of investors coming up with their own technology, but um, investing in what is already there. Um, so from a Bionic MFS Africa perspective, obviously for us, it was more of growing their reach that MFS Africa has and also a different customer base. Um, so, so I think that other fintechs also started adopting that type of approach of, you know, expanding their service offering, expanding their um, customer base by acquiring um, other fintechs uh, that are already um, uh, that are already um, in the market. So that's the one of the um, trends that we see that it's increasingly um, more, you know, acquisitions by by fintechs themselves, but also um, investors coming in and putting in money into these fintechs. But I think another interesting um, another in interesting trend is that it's not only equity raisings, but we're also seeing debt equity. Uh, where you have these debt equity players as well that are willing to put uh, money in the fintechs um, to help with working capital requirements and expansion requirements. Um, so that's also quite interesting to see that, you know, it, it sort of gives um, fintechs um, another avenue to have working capital instead of just doing an equity raise. Um, but I think as as the fintech sort of grow and then, um, you know, enter into more M&A transactions, interesting enough, you start getting a lot of scrutiny as well from regulators, um, especially where you're going to have foreign investors come in and put money into, you know, the, the entity, especially when you're doing somewhat of an equity raise, or also if you're entering a new market by an acquisition of an existing fintech. Um, so regulators will want to understand, you know, um, these um, investors, where are they sitting, you know, so things around AML and money laundering sort of um, CFT come into play. So there's scrutiny around that um, as well. So with, with fintechs that are proposing to enter into this type of M&A transactions, that's, that's another 
um, consideration that they really must have in terms of regulators will gain scrutiny uh, or will have scrutiny on on your on your entity, which is something that you know a fintech might not necessarily have prepared for. But as soon as you bring foreign investors into a, 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 a country, the regulators start having um, a lot of scrutiny. So I think those are sort of like the three observations that we're sort of seeing in the fintech MA um, space in the last two to three years. Thanks a lot for, for that, um, for you. Um, that is clear, um, key trends that you're seeing within, within your space. Um, um, I urge you, might I bring you in on this point as well, because I think we saw from recent press reports that there might have been some MA activity within your ecosystem as well. Can you speak to us very quickly about one or two of the key, key observations that you might have made as someone who's operating personal with what might be happening in the fintech MA space on the continent? Thanks. Yeah, thanks, uh, Jibala. I think on the MA space, uh, I guess uh, the overall it's, it's still early days, uh, but at least for for dot for example we we wanted to play in the in the health insurance space and we felt that the fastest way uh, and even the most uh, capital efficient way to to get into that that uh, space in terms of licensing and also just in terms of acquiring customer was uh, through an acquisition which uh, we completed uh, working uh, with your good selves um but I, I also do think that uh potentially as we're going into the new year 2023 uh there might be some uh some mergers uh, that might happen uh the reason for that is I, I do think globally uh the world might be moving into more difficult uh economic situation uh, so people might potentially consider uh coming together to uh at least to 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 some of the uh so, some of the pressure for 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 capital and just for survival um and i also do think that as the as as the space evolves and matures some of the natural progression of things will be people coming together either uh through MA activity or some kind of combination or acqui acqui hire or some or some 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 uh some variant of that and I do also think it's a positive thing overall for the for the ecosystem and more importantly I think it could also be a good uh, a good part for people to realize uh, exit uh, I, I do think culturally it is one of the most difficult things to do uh, at least in, in Nigeria but uh, I'm sure people people will definitely warm up to to hit to be definitely driven by uh, by what the market is saying, and I, I'm sure uh, some of the actors and the and the players in the market as well will see the benefits of coming together very quickly. So I do think potentially 2023 might be a year where there will be more uh, M and A, maybe just in terms of uh, combination and acquisition uh, than what we have seen uh, over the last couple of years, because I do think the world is moving into a more um, uh, stringent economic uh, situation. Thank you. Th thanks a lot for that insight. Um, I think I think the key point which is heartening to hear is that your assessment is there will be more m and activity um, in 2023 and going forward. Um, Kiru, I'm just gonna kind of pick up on a theme you, you outlined in your previous intervention where you spoke about quality of products and quality of offerings. Um, I think maybe you could help us by providing a response to this question. You know, which is the better approach? Um, do you build a tech and find a client or do you find a traditional business with a large client base and then implement the tech with this client base? I mean, it would be good to hear your insights um, on this and then possibly um, chats after, after you, you go. Thanks. So that's that's a great question. Um, I think it's um, there's probably there's probably the a, a way that there's a way to tackle this that comes from a commercial point of view, and there's a way to tackle this that comes from kind of an innovator point of view. As I think as innovators, the first thing is you want to build 
um, you want to almost be in control of the entire product. So you want to build everything from start to finish, end to end. And, you know, this is why some of the fintechs are even getting banking licenses, because you still want to control everything. So from that perspective, building the technology um, from start to finish is very attractive because you can control all the factors. You can control, you know, all the quality. Uh, you can control almost, um, you know, every single aspect of it. However, um, from a commercial point of view, it actually makes a lot of sense to use an existing, um, you know, kind of traditional businesses clients as an acquisition strategy. So your cost of acquisition is lower, but what tends to happen is you're integrating a solution to kind of a wider, um, you know, a wider mechanism. So, you know, you're a small part in the cog, you're more efficient, but you're not dealing with, um, you're not, you know, particularly the vision of your product hasn't come come to light per se. Um, so, for example, if you're uh, if we're looking at financial services and um, you you you're providing a service to a bank, which then provides this to a user. So you're a B two B two C company. Um, say, for example, you provide um, a helpline service or um, a, a, an intuitive you know kind of mobile chat support service. So instead of me going to the bank um, to uh, serve to be to have my account serviced by someone over the teller, I can go on a, a chat bot and have it serviced. So there are many people that provide that solution, but as kind of an innovator, you look at that and you're like, oh, why can't I make everything else more efficient? Why can't I make the transactions faster? Why can't I make the, you know, the interface better? Um, so the pros and cons uh, to it, and I think I'd love to hear what everyone else thinks, but um, from a commercial perspective, absolutely it makes sense to acquire an existing customer base um, from kind of the, the perspective of, you know, you know every entrepreneur has a, a vision for their product, a vision for the end consumer. I, I feel it's truly, it's really challenging to have that um, uh, when you're embedded to a larger player. Thanks a lot for that. Um, I think it's fair to hear you know, the perspective of all the new banks and this. So, so, you know, very much interested in hearing Chad's view and then we'll get it to you. Do you mind just repeating the question for me? Yeah, so the question the question goes thus. Um, do you, you know, which is the better approach? Do you build a tech, then find the clients? Or do you find traditional business with a, with a large enough client base and then implement a tech with that client base? Yeah, I mean, um, I think I just got a shorter answer, just philosophical. It's just always starting with a customer and working backwards, you know. Um, you know, Copo Copo, in the past, I've got a little bit of scar tissue from this. It's like we, we so we, man, we manage payments for businesses in Kenya, digital payments for businesses, even like the coffee shop I'm in right now in Nairobi Java House. If I pay through M-Pesa here, it's going through Copo Copo technology. Um, um, you know, you got to... You start with what the customer needs. And for our businesses, it's basically the ways that their customers would like to pay. And then you sort of work backwards for the best experience and build the tech based on that. Um, um, you know, I've, I've had some learnings of us trying to be basically trendsetters in payments of getting customers of businesses in Kenya to use QR codes and other methods. And um, I'm just, I'm realizing I'm, I'm not going to be in that business anymore. I'm going to watch what the, what the customers in Kenya are paying with and the businesses that we work with you know, what their customers are trying to pay with. And then we'll build the tech based on the need. Because, you know, we get we get quite a few pitches from like startup sort of payment systems, including like, you know, crypto guys. Why don't you add Bitcoin to your platform? Couldn't you do that? We could, you know, we could roll up Bitcoin payments perhaps for all of the merchants. And the next time they log into their Copa Cobra app, there's an update and it gives instructions if somebody wants to pay you Bitcoin. But the problem is nobody's asking for it. So we're not going to put the engineering time on that. Um, uh, but, you know, we as payment methods evolve, we'll, we'll sort of evolve with it. But I think we're not trying to create the trends at Copa Copo anyway. Um, I, you know, I have a huge respect for the others that are, are actually trying to do that because it's sort of a much riskier business. We're just following the trends and providing a great platform uh, for the businesses to accept the form of payments that customers are already paying with. Yeah, th th thanks a lot for that, Chad. So, you know, clearly your approach is to, you know, to focus on raw numbers and that, that is interesting to hear. Um, did you, can you be kind enough to let us know what your view is on this? Um, do you do you need me to repeat the question or, or did you hear the question? Just say it again one, one more time. Thanks. Oh, sorry. Are you asking me again? Oh, sorry. You moved on. Sorry. Pardon me. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Ajibola. Uh, I mean, I think I think the answer is uh, just just in terms of our approaches. Uh, 
is really around uh, customer research. Uh, I think when you think about uh, first principles and businesses, is really to understand uh, how what the what the customer wants, uh, and also to also understand uh, consumer behavior. I think based on that, you then build the product. I think to Chad's point, there's really no benefits building things, maybe shiny things that uh, customers really don't don't want or need. And uh, it's also very important. I think one of the one of the hard lessons, uh, especially in this part of the world, is really very critical to take the market for what it is. Uh, also, understanding that people ultimately are going to vote with their wallets. So, if you have a product that people can pay for, then it defeats. Uh, it ultimately defeats the purpose of uh, why the product is there in the first instance. Uh, yeah. So, so I do think that first of all, really understand uh, consumer needs, consumer preferences. It makes sense as part of that uh, product development to then spend some time to get uh, uh, customer insights. Uh, so, customer research is really uh, is really really important. I I must say, yeah. Th thanks a lot for that, DG. Um, similar 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 um, similar similar themes. Um, you know, before I invite um, Fulu to dive in here um, to, to contribute to this question that's just been asked and address the next question, can I just um, indicate to the audience that any questions you might have, please send them out in the chat box and you know, they'll be um, directed to the, parts, to the panelists accordingly. Thanks a lot for that. Um, Fulu, did, did you want to chime into, into this question of um, this chicken and egg point? Um, yes, yes, um, I, I, I did. Um, I think we've had interesting perspectives from a um, you know entrepreneurial innovation perspective, but I think there might also be a regulatory um, perspective that you know um, fintechs might want to consider. I think um, sometimes it, it might be also important to understand the regulatory framework and landscape of uh, a, a particular um, a particular jurisdiction that the fintech wants to enter um, and, and I think because some landscapes are very rigid in terms of which party can provide what um, so I think that can also aid in trying to understand whether or not it's better to build um, something um, um, build a tech or partner with like a traditional business that's already there because a traditional business typically will probably have the authority the regulatory approvals um, that are that are required and, and and I think sometimes that there was a point around you know neo banks getting their own banking licenses which is which is great but I think when you look at some of the regulatory requirements around you know getting sub those types of licenses, you then realize that you know some fintechs don't necessarily have the structures or processes and assurances in place that would you know make the regulators uh, happy and and you'll see that regulators are very they're very protective when it comes to giving out certain licenses so sometimes you know a a, a partnership may may work best with an existing traditional um um and um entity that's already there um, and then once you know regulators sort of catch up um, then you know you might you might consider um, maybe just building you know tech um, which which might might just be regulated at a later time because you, you find that sometimes regulators are really trying to to catch up to innovation thanks a lot for that um, you know the regulatory things you outline is very crucial and it is backdrop of, of things like consumer protection, etc. It's it's interesting and notable that you mentioned that because whilst you know whilst the new banks talk about just kind of focusing on on the raw numbers and on following the money in quotes, if you will, the, the, there are regulatory concerns as well. Which brings me to my next question, um, and, and this will be for you fully to start if you don't mind. Um, consumer protection is quickly emerging as a major concern for regulators and consumer groups. And this concern extends to different components within the value chain, from operators like the neobanks themselves to infrastructures and even the products that they're offering um, in the marketplace. And we all saw, for example, what happened with FTX last week um, in crypto infrastructure. Um, now, the question is, as financial market regulators begin to grapple with how to regulate the fintech space, um, I wonder fully, um, what steps do you think regulators can take to actually strengthen consumer protection frameworks 
um, across the continent. Um, thanks for that, Ajibola. Um, I think I, I've sort of alluded to, to this um, when I was making my earlier point that regulators really are playing catch up to innovation. Um, and the, the regulations that are <clears throat> typically in place regulate what's currently going on in the market, right? So the regulators are not going to regulate something which is not uh, an activity which is not um, ongoing. So I think for regulators to be more proactive um, would be um, one avenue to take. And I think the proactiveness really would also have to do with the market players who want to bring a certain solution or start offering a certain activity um, um, to proactively engage with those regulators. I think from an MFS Africa perspective as well, we are sort of proactive as well in, time, in trying to engage with regulators to make them understand the tech and the solutions that we are bringing. Um, so I think, you know, where if there's um, that proactiveness from, from, from various fintechs in terms of the activities that they want to bring. And I think when it comes to consumer protection, particularly in the crypto space, I think that's always going to be an interesting point because of the nature of crypto in itself and the sort of the anonymity of, of it when you're looking at the crypto players. And whereas regulators really want to understand that who is going to um, have that customer protection responsibility. And in, 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 in fintech, there's various players and the answer might not be very clear um, because, you know, you might have players who are just providing the tech. You might have the player who's actually, you know, client facing and interacting with the clients and actually providing the solution. Um, so, you, so then it's imperative that there is this proactive, um, you know, engagement with regulators. This is going to aid regulators understand the activity a bit more, understand the responsibilities of the various players um, and who has what responsibility, who has, um, you know, who's going to deal with, you know, certain customer queries or anything along those lines. And then once that's understood, I think from a regulatory perspective, regulators will then come up with things like SLAs, which will sort of define, um, you know, how um, consumer protection queries as a, are dealt with and within what time and, 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 and things like that. So a really a more proactive approach, um, I think is what regulators and market players really to, to take going forward instead of the current approach right now where regulators really are playing catch up to innovation that's already there. And then they generally will play that catch up when something has now gone wrong. Um, and you know they need to now fit in or find some solution in current regulation, which is not necessarily geared towards regulating that activity. Thanks a lot, um, Fru, that was very insightful. Um, even though I know that um, our time is Moving along rapidly, can I can I just invite Kiru to chime in on this point as well as a as a youth focused um, Pan African neo bank? Um, you know, given that you know, demographic that you kind of target kids to is very much interested in this new financial products and in the fintech space, what's the, as an operator yourself? Um, what steps do you think um, financial market regulators across the continent um, you know, need to need to put in place to protect um, consumers at this point? Thank you. Um, so, for for us looking at um, for us looking at this protection and security question, we we actually look at it starting from a user experience perspective. Um, how can we first ensure a user experience that is um, seamless, a user experience that is exceptional while maintaining standards of um, security and compliance? And we've actually found that regulators and kind of the the whole market of uh, people that administer and regulate financial services a lot of time the job is to set a standard so to set a standard of security to set a standard of you know anti-fraud to set a standard um, and that standard is awarded through various certifications so for example PCDSS which is a payment certification uh, SOCTEP all these various types of certifications so I think firstly um, if you merge um, the 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 type of user experience that is desirable to the type of standard that is um, almost you know as secure as it gets, then you're able to um, then you're able to effectively protect your consumers and give them the product that we want that they want or that they need or that you want to give them. Um, so, a lot of the time you find that actually 
the main challenge with digital banks like Finger is that they onboard users really quickly and you have a high rate of churn and a high rate of fraud. Um, so there's so many cases where, um, you know, even digital onboarding itself is a quite a new thing. So the idea is that, you you know, you scan your face using your camera, um, you take a picture of, um, uh, of your ID cards and you're able to onboard a user. And this is very different from walking into a physical branch where someone's able to see you. Now you're relying fully on technology. So you open up different avenues of fraud, right? Um, and the transaction rate for a digital bank is really, really high. So people are able to send money for, you you know, virtually zero fees. So you again, you open up different avenues for fraud. And I think the best way to combat this is regulators should not, you know, be going into you know the 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 transaction manifest and looking at you know what's fraudulent and what's not. Regulators should not be looking into uh, various um, uh, you know various technologies to you know effectively um, uh, kind of standardize things. Uh, what I think they should do is set a really high standard. So a standard that is you know you can apply for, you can, you know, um, kind of uh, aspire to, you can train your staff to attain. And that's effectively how you create a, an industry where um, every fintech, if you know this fintech has, you know, kind of this triple A rating on this standard, then um, you know that your money's safe, you know that the fraud is low, uh, and you also know that you're able to transact uh, with, with a certain degree of confidence. And if you do that across the continent and you have one particular standard, then, you know, you've effectively opened a pathway for a very scalable um, uh, kind of compliance and, and, and security measure. Thanks a lot for that. Um, I think I think what you advocate, if I may summarize, is some sort of light touch approach that, that is you know, driven by, or that is underpinned by you know, regulators mainly setting standards. Um, I think, let, let, let me invite respectfully other new banks on the panel to actually chime in on this point. Um, I, I did you, what is your view on, on how you know, the regulatory approach that Kirill alluded to, how, how might this be balanced to ensure that you know, it's not too weak or that regulation is not so vigorous as to stifle innovation? How, how does one achieve a balance here in a way where you advance um, innovation but at the same time protect consumers? Uh, it's clear that this is crucial against the back of what happened last week with FTX, even though admittedly it's a market infrastructure, not a non-operator like yourselves. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, just just on the regulatory, uh, I think all the actors, including startups, uh, we just have to uh, pay a lot of attention. I think, I guess the way we look at uh, regulation is uh, regulation is a critical core competency. So we treat it as uh, uh, a critical uh, in-house capability for the business. Uh, so we're regulatory first because financial services is highly regulated on one side. I, I guess on the other side is also thinking carefully about building that, that in-house capability, whether on the legal side, on the compliance side, and overall side. Uh, and then also just flipping the coin to talk about the regulators themselves. I do think that there's a world uh, where regulators also are having startup uh, desk. They do understand the, all the evolving uh, trends, all the things that are happening. They have very close relationship with the different uh, participants and players. I'll send you the new link. Different players. Um, I do think that if that doesn't happen, then uh, definitely you create a situation where the regulator doesn't really understand uh, the different innovation and even the, what the different uh, uh, startup uh, players are trying to achieve or some of their uh, challenges. And then the, uh, the, the same for startups as well. So startups really don't understand uh, regulators and regulators don't understand startups. Uh, so to summarize, I do think that there's a world where uh, in order to pretty much bridge that uh, gap, it's, it's then very important for startups to ensure that they, they do have in-house uh, or at least maybe house source people that do understand regulators and then regulators also then have to start uh, building capabilities, start hiring people that understand the startups uh, and vice versa. So I, I think 
I think that's the that's the way forward. But uh, if that doesn't happen, then very quickly, I think uh, some of the startups might might start experiencing existential uh, crisis, start uh, getting fined, and start uh, uh, being on the on the bad side of uh, our regulate, regulation and regulators. Yeah. Thanks a lot for your for your insightful response. Um, I did. Chad, might I ask you to chime in as well as an operator? Um, what is your view on achieving a balance as, as it pertains to regulation on one hand and innovation on the other hand? And what are some of your experiences um, on these matters? Well, you know, I think to the extent that a fintech like us are unregulated, so couple couple right now, we're seeking a banking license, but we don't have it yet. You know, I, I think it's like, the, the sacred bit is you're handling uh, cash for businesses. So you're sort of, you know, you're not able to lend that out uh, to the extent we're holding cash of a business temporarily until they give us instructions. You know, it has to be every Kenyan shilling they think they have has to be in a basically uh, cur- a callable account immediately. Right. And, um, you know, um, unfortunately, like, you know, as you've mentioned with FTX, we see this again and again, the people who started to get in the shadow banking sector, um, uh, you know, get themselves into trouble. So you really need to be on your sort of best best behavior with respect to cash. Um, um, you know, but then, uh, so, you know, I'd say that the reconciliations and, and the kind of treatment of the cash that we do almost has to be like better than a bank in a way because, because we're not regulated. So to the extent, um, you know, when we're, if we're raising money or if we're getting this banking license, it's like, we're absolutely pristine as far as knowing exactly where every shilling is for every client. Um, you know, but not being regulated gives you advantages in other space, like our lending operation. We can we can really try really innovative kind of lending products that uh, if uh, in a bank where they would need to be approved by the central bank might take you a little bit longer, make you a little bit less less agile. So I've always thought that that's a little bit of an advantage. But um, you know, I think the unregulated fintechs that hold cash or hold custody of of any sort of securities on behalf of a client, like, you know, have to be on the, the absolute uh, best behavior as if they're regulated. Thanks a lot for that. Um, insightful response, Chad. Interesting to know that on that side of the continent, you can do what you're doing um, on that scale and that velocity, um, you know, while still being unregulated in quote. That's, that's interesting to note. Um, I think we're going to step back a bit. I, I know our time is fast spent. We're going to step back a bit to take it continent-wide. Um, and I think I'll start with Fulu to just chime in here and then we'll go to Kuru. Um, this is my continent-wide conversation now. Um, the underlying infrastructure supporting fintech is heavily fragmented, right? Um, and for example, we have over 171 mobile money wallets um, across the continent and most of these are, are not interoperable. There's over a thousand banks and there's over 12 card networks. Uh, I think the question is going forward, how do we reduce this fragmentation and what opportunities might the um, African continent free trade area agreement offer in this respect? Um. Thanks, thanks for that, Ajibola. I think the first part of the of your question around, you know, how do we reduce the the fragmentation? Um, I think the underlying infrastructure that is currently in place, I suppose, was meant to address certain, you know, activities or certain, you know, certain markets. And I, th- I suppose that's why you now have fintechs like ourselves that try to bring those various players who you know address certain activities together and by by partnerships right um, partnering with um, with with all of those um, with all of those players whether or not it's because one player will have the regulatory approval and the other player will have the tech to be able to streamline processes and bring um, um, services to um, okay bring services to to a particular client base more easy, easily um, than traditional um, banking or whatever the case may be. So I think really reducing that fragmentation is really through partnerships currently, um, working with various various partners in, 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 the, in, the, in the industry, which is typically our, our, our model at MFS Africa. And then what um, 
what opportunities are brought by the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement? I think from, from the, the, I suppose the value proposition of this agreement, um, you know, being, being, being like this free trade area and trying to streamline a lot of issues around regulatory problems that various countries have. And, you know, particularly things like being able to send money out and, um, you know, exchange control provisions and things like that and trying to streamline that. I think that brings um, possible solutions to current problems that we have. Um, I know there's also a, 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 I suppose, a suggestion of a hub um, which will be implemented, which, you know, various e-commerce platforms will be able to plug into, which sort of brings in some sort of certainty for them when you're looking at things like, you know, fraud and doing a proper due diligence on the merchant on the other side and making sure that pro payments are, are processed quite quick, quick, quickly and more in real time. Um, and, you know, therefore just improving services that are going to be brought to the, the customers. I think that is also one of the value propositions that this is going to bring. But I think for, in our experience, there's still a lot of, um, you know, a lot of differences in how various regulators in various regions approach things. And, and up until that time, that that is also streamlined uh, where, you know, regulators are regulating particular activities in a similar way. Um, I think there's still that gap that we are looking, that we are finding right now with, uh, with African regulators, even regulators in various regions, you know, if I look at the UMR region, um, the BCIO, you know, will have various regulations, which are sort of supposed to be uniform across that region, but then you see that various offices in the various countries of the BCIO have a different interpretation of you know, the very same legislation. Um, and then you see when you're trying to do inter-region payments or transfers or whatever the case is, um, there also isn't that uniformity, you know, unlike when you look at you know, how things work in the EU, where there's one overarching regulator, and then you know, you know, payments and, and activities sort of happen through passporting, which we still don't have that. So we need to work on more of a uniformity of, of these rules. And although I think this is a great um, initiative, um, but I think there's still a lot, of, a lot of things that sort of need to be ironed out from a regulatory perspective, because at the end of the day, we still have to deal with these various regulators and then the, the, the laws are not uniform enough. Thanks a lot for you. Um, I think that is clear. As it pertains to fragmentation, you say in the immediate more partnerships, and on the point about the um, continent-wide agreement, you just note that, rather sadly, um, there's still more integration to be done. Um, Q, might I ask, um, what are your views on this very quickly? Our time is far spent, but we're good to hear everyone's thoughts on this. What are your views, um, firstly, on what we can do to reduce fragmentation across um, relevant components in the fintech value chain? And, and how, you know, what opportunities do you think the um, ACFTA uh, affords us at this time. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> when when we think about when I think about how Africa is fragmented, you know, let's start from the beginning of that fragmentation, which was, you know, about a century ago, um, during what they called the balkanization of Africa. So you know, all the way back, you know, during the colonial era when we actually got our first um, borders. And the reason I go so far back is um, it's actually very important to understand that, you know, Africa was divided using um, kind of a post-colonial framework, France, British uh, uh, colonies and empires were disbanded and, you know, um, uh, divided using tribal lines. Um, and it's, you know, it's called the balkanization. And why this process is so important is actually to understand that um, as a society, we've developed, you know, with very um, kind of closed borders. And what's happened with uh, this new trade agreement is that it's allowed us to think of Africa as one market. Uh, and I think the very first people to be able to tackle or conquer this um, continent as one market is going to be um, software companies. So companies that can move across um, different uh, different countries, so to speak, with relative ease. You know, you have an app store now. That's your main means of distribution. So you no longer need, the, you know, your physical apparatus in each country. You have app stores, you have, um, you know, various platforms, uh, MFS being one of them, where they can help you 
interact with different uh, payment services. So for me, this is more of a almost, you know, cultural, philosophical, spiritual. Um, it's us as Africans thinking of ourselves as one market. And I think that's the first thing that this trade agreement helps us do. Um, and once we think of ourselves as one market, then, you know, the possibilities of standardizing, the possibilities of um, ensuring that um, we're able to communicate to each other across, you know, culture, across boundaries across uh, borders, then that becomes uh, possible. So I think for me, this is more of a mental thing. Um, there's, there's a lot of elements of this which are technical, but I think beyond the technical, you know, if we can think of the potential of how can we um, uh, serve, how can I, you know, as fingers serve young people, you know, in Senegal, as well as in Kenya, um, and how can I do that relatively quickly, then that becomes exciting. And then, you know, we're able to connect with each other. Um, so that's, that's my thoughts on it. And yeah. Th thanks a lot for that. Um, I think what I hear is more integration from you. Um, I did you, I've been trying to hear your views on this. Um, I mean, you know, we, in more traditional Nigerian banks um, are setting up shop across the continent. Um, some Nigerian fintechs have operations across the continent. Um, and some SA businesses, same thing as Nigeria, East Africa as well. What, what are your views on how we can reduce fragmentation? And what are, your, what are your views on what benefits we could potentially draw from this continent-wide free trade agreement in terms of going forward? Yeah. Thanks, thanks, Ajibawa. I think uh, just on the on the after agreement, I think it comes down to mobility, ability of Africans to move freely on the continent. And I think when people can move freely, trade follows that in in, in the right sequence. Um, so today, I, I think it's easier for an European and American to to move across the continent or even to move from Dubai to the rest of the continent or on the continent itself. So that says a lot just in terms of a lot of the frictions, just in terms of geopolitical on the continent. Um, I think before we start talking about trade, whether it's payment or banking, or insurance or other financial service offerings. It's very critical to take out the, the, the issues of visas. Uh, I think once that is solved, then everything else will, will, will follow. So I'll be more excited, I think, if, if, if we start talking about, okay, how is it possible for me to take my bags, go to Lusaka, and then I know that tomorrow I can apply for a job and I can get a job because I'm qualified to get a job. Uh, I think that is really the underlining first principle kind of hat we all need to wear. And once that gets solved, I tell you, trade will follow. Thanks a lot for that. Um, yeah, like, like, um, like Fulu and Kiri, the theme from you is more integration and freedom of movement, people want good services as well. Um, Chad, someone who set up shop in, in, in Kenya now with Kobo Kobo, um, what are your views on, you know, on how to re reduce fragmentation across the continent? And what are your views as to what benefits um, might potentially accrue um, pursuant to this continent-wide free trade agreement um, that's, just been, that's just been implemented across the continent? Yeah, um, I might have a different uh, view on this than maybe others. It's, um, you know, I think when you're an individual operator like I am in one in one, one country and that you know, we'll, we'll be in more than one um, uh, soon, um, you know, I, th I think we don't see this as a problem. It's just, can we operate on the, on the, on the infrastructure that's there? Can we, can we modify our technology? You know, I, I sometimes feel like the, um, this sort of thing where, is, is more in the realm of sort of academics and, uh, and think tanks and things like that, where they see a highly fragmented market. And on their spreadsheet, uh, they basically see how like centra more centralization is better. And because, you know, central, central planning always looks better on a spreadsheet. That's, that's why people fall for it, right? You know, that's why the Soviets fall for it, right? That's why I have three cement companies delivering cement to this you know, area when one state run can do it. Well, you know, sometimes it's because, you know, there's, you give a little skin in the game and yes, there's waste because of the competition and the duplication, um, but it allows for much more innovation and individuals with sort of skin in the game in those markets. So 
for me, I, I'd say this kind of fragmentation is not something that sort of keeps me up at night as a as a pro, as a as a problem. But you know, but I, I do hear this a lot, like at, at conferences, and the, the more sort of academicy uh, the the speakers are, the, the more that that this this fragmentation troubles them because on their spreadsheet it shows waste. Thanks a lot for those very interesting comments, um, Chad. Um, I think our time is far spent, and I think thank you very much um, to all the panelists for for the yeah, insights you provided on this on this session, and they're very useful, and they very much underpin um, this conversation about fintech and how you know what contributions fintech will make um, as potentially growth of of the African economy, generally speaking, I think I think the, the theme of more integration, um, as is the majority view on this panel, is probably a good note to close on. In the absence of any um, any pressing questions um, um, in the chat box, um, you know, the future of business on the continent, just in rounding up, future of business on the continent is moving towards you know a single market dynamic, um, and it, it this is increasing of it always is reflective of you know, the, this single digital market that is emerging and all the businesses that yourselves have promoted um, is testament to that. Um, thank you very much for the insights you shared and ALN is very much grateful and appreciative of the time. We also thank our atten attendees. Thank you for your participation and one or two comments that have been posted on, on the box and we look forward to speaking to you again soon at our, at our tech series. Thanks to um, Fulu, Kiru, Ayodeji, and Chad. And thanks to our attendees as well. I think with that being said, we'll close out this session. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Right. Cheers. Bye.